Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 56, the book of Matthew, chapter 16. Who is Yeshua? What is Yeshua? You know, this is a question that has yet to be fully answered to this point in Matthew. And even though most 21st century Christians think it's an answer and settled matter in the church, it's far from it. Matthew chapter 16 adds a new wrinkle into who and what Jesus was. Now, up to now, he has said and demonstrated that he's a number of things. And we're going to go fairly deep into this topic during our, our study in, in this chapter, mainly because this is the time to do it. The first thing that must be noticed is that Christ has been presented by the gospel writer Matthew as a complexity of attributes and roles, and he cannot be defined by a simplistic faith doctrine. And the second thing to notice is that to this point, Yeshua is, to the Jews he's encountered in so many different settings, primarily a Sadiq, a Jewish holy man, even though they had some suspicions that he was some other things too. Now, a Sadek is a remarkable Jew who comes along only rarely that has the divinely given ability to do miracle healings. It seems that Jesus was not the only Jewish miracle healer that had come along by his day. And after his time, there would be others. Now, let's begin our study by reading all of Matthew chapter 16 together. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Let's read the scriptures together. Matthew chapter 16. Then some Parshim and Sadukim, that's the Pharisees and Sadducees, came to trap Yeshua by asking him to show them a miraculous sign from heaven. But his response was, when it is evening, you say, fair weather ahead, because the sky is red. And in the morning, you say, storm today, because the sky is red and overcast. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the sign of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation is asking for a sign? It will certainly not be given a sign, except the sign of Yonah, of Jonah. With that, he left them and went off. The Talmudim, in crossing to the other side of the lake, had forgotten to bring any bread. So when Yeshua said to them, watch out, guard yourselves against the hommets, that's the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they thought he said it because they hadn't brought bread. But Yeshua, aware of this, said, such little trust you have. Why are you talking with each other about not having bread? 
Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you filled? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you filled? How can you possibly be thinking I was talking to you about bread? Guard yourselves from the hamets, the leaven of the parushim, the sadukim. And then they understood. They were to guard themselves not from yeast for bread, but from the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, when Yeshua came into the territory around Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who are people saying the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say Yochanan the Immerser, others Eliyahu, that's Elijah, still others Yermiao, that's uh, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he said to them, who do you say I am? And Shimon Kepha, that's Peter, answered, you are the Mashiach, the son of the living God. Shimon bar Yochanan, Yeshua said to him, how blessed you are, for no human being revealed this to you. No, it was my Father in heaven. I also tell you this, you are Kepha, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my community and the gates of Sheol will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you prohibit on earth will be prohibited in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Yeshua began making it clear to his Talmudim that he had to go to Jerusalem and endure much suffering at the hands of the elders, the head Kohanim, that's the head priest, and the Torah teachers, and that he had to be put to death, but that on the third day he had to be raised to life. Now Kepha took him aside and began rebuking him. Heaven be merciful, Lord, by no means will this happen to you. But Yeshua turned his back on Kepha, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You are an obstacle in my path because your thinking is from a human perspective, not from God's perspective. Then Yeshua told his Talmudim, if anyone wants to come after me, let him say no to himself. Take up his execution stake and keep following me. For whosoever wants to save his own life will destroy it. But whoever destroys his life for my sake will find it. What good will it do someone if he gains the whole world, but he forfeits his life? What can a person give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come in his Father's glory with his angels. Then he will repay everyone according to his conduct. Yes, I tell you that there are some people standing here who will not experience death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. To better understand the scene that, that unfolds to open this chapter, we've got to go back to the ending of chapter 15. There it reads, Everyone ate his fill, and they took seven large baskets full of the leftover pieces, and those eating numbered 4,000 men plus 
women and children. And after sending the crowd away, he got into a bowl and went off into the region of Magadan. So after the miraculous feeding of the 4,000 and then sending the crowds away, Yeshua got into a boat. He went off to a place called Magadan. Now there's no subtle conclusion about where exactly that is, except that it is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, still in Magadan, Yeshua is approached by some Sadducees and Pharisees that have, have come to ask him, or demand is more like it, to show them a sign from heaven as some kind of an unspecified validation, not so much of who he is, but rather from what source does he get his power. Now, since the accusation has been made to him before that his abilities came from Satan, I can imagine they wanted him to somehow prove to their liking that these powers came from above, from God, if he could. And as with only the opening verse of this chapter, there is so much to unpack throughout it that we're going to spend a lot of time with it because it is here that we see an important milestone in Christ's earthly ministry. And because this incident of yet another confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders is also recorded in the book of Mark, we're going to take a couple of minutes just to read it because it rounds out what we, the information that we have about it. So turn your Bibles to Mark, Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8. We're just going to read verses 11 through 22, 11 through 22, Mark chapter 8. The Pharisees came and began arguing with him. They wanted him to give them a sign from heaven because they were out to trap him. And with a sigh that came straight from his heart, he said, why does this generation want a sign? Yes, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And with that, he left them, got into the boat again, and went off to the other side of the lake. Now, when the disciples had forgotten to bring bread and had with them in the boat only one loaf, so when Yeshua said to them, watch out, Guard yourselves from the hamets, the leaven of the parushim, and the hamets of Herod. They thought he had said it because they had no bread. But aware of this, he said, why are you talking with each other about having no bread? Don't you see or understand yet? Have your hearts been made like stone? You have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, don't you hear? Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? Twelve, they answered him. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you collect? Seven, they answered. And he said to them, and still you don't understand. Notice that Mark says some Pharisees. 
came to Yeshua, he makes no mention of Sadducees. Now it's hard to know why, except perhaps Mark didn't think it that important to mention them. Remembering that Mark's intended audience were Gentile Romans, while Matthew's were Jews, the lack of mention of the Sadducees by Mark might have to do with his Gentile readership not really understanding or needing to know the Jewish cultural nuances between Pharisees and Sadducees. Nuances that every Jew would readily pick up on and understand the significance of this piece of information. So Jews knew <clears throat> that the Pharisees were the faction who dominated the synagogue system leadership, while the Sadducees were the faction that dominated the temple system leadership. That is, while both of these are essentially political social factions, they're not the name of some kind of a, a religious or political officer position. Nonetheless, each faction represented the dominant one within their particular sphere of influence. The Pharisees were the favored leadership of the synagogue. The Sadducees were the party favored by the chief priests and the high priest. So an ominous corner has been turned here. Up to this point, Yeshua has been targeted as a threat only to the synagogue leadership. And we, as we know from his several testy encounters with them, however, that sense of threat has now crossed over to include the temple authorities and the priesthood. In other words, Starting now, the entire Jewish religious leadership complex was gunning for him. Now, what we see is that the Jewish leadership, religious leadership of both the systems were all too aware of Yeshua's accomplishments and claims, but even more how much the people flocked to him. See, these two factions that were essentially rivals, well, they had a little love for one another, but here they're banding together to try to blunt the trajectory of this rising star of the common people. What's that saying? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Now we learned in Matthew chapter five of the tremendous crowd Jesus drew at his Sermon on the Mount. Then in chapter 14, we read of him drawing about 10,000 people, people he not only miraculously healed, but he also miraculously fed. And in chapter 15, he drew yet another crowd of around 8,000 for whom he did the same. I mean, no one could establish that immense of a following in the Holy Land and go unnoticed by a perpetually suspicious religious or political leadership because it was occurring outside their oversight, outside their structure, therefore outside their control. Jesus was not accepted by the Pharisees or the Sadducees as a fellow servant of God, a minister to the people, but rather as an unwelcome competitor. He was a pest. They were afraid this would upset the apple cart 
and ruin especially the Sadducees' cozy relationship with their Roman occupiers. You know, I think it's hard for a Bible student that is paying attention as he or she reads through Matthew to understand how, after a barrelful of miracles and exorcisms that Christ had done, that these men could demand another one. The reality is that such a request for a sign is absurd on its face, and it merely exposes that these leaders are the false prophets, blind guides, and, and wolves in sheep's clothing that Yeshua had openly declared them on numerous occasions. There was nothing Yeshua could ever do to convince them of His divine position and authority because they had hardened hearts. They were here to protect their turf and nothing else. Well, as for the miraculous sign in heaven that they wanted, this is speaking about a sign in the sky above the firmament. And it's uh, firmament meaning the ground portion of the firmament. And it's not about the spiritual heaven where God lives. And in the ancient belief of that day, God's heaven sat above the sky. So exactly what kind of a sign in the sky might they have been seeking? What they want? They want the sun to stand still? They want the moon to come out in the day? See, it's not stated. And no doubt, it doesn't matter. Because their request for a sign was sarcastic. It wasn't literal. And it was only meant to try to cast Yeshua as a fraud in order to try to discourage as many followers and would-be followers. See, Yeshua refuses their request and in reply speaks a proverb of sorts that most people even in the modern West know. To paraphrase it, red sky in the morning, sailor take warning, red sky at night, sailor's delight. That is, the red sky is a sign in heaven, the heaven where the birds fly and the clouds float, that the typical Jew and Gentile, for that matter, would understand its significance. See, just like today, weather mattered for people. And they paid attention to signs that would tell them what to expect. In the Red Sky proverb, the people, of course, understood, and this is critical, that the time of the day, the time of the day that the Red Sky occurred was decisive because the same sign at one time of the day was a good omen. At another time of the day, it was a bad omen. Time. So says Christ, these religious leaders seem to know how to look up into the sky and see these signs that tells them about the weather, yet they can't read the even more important and obvious signs about the era, about the time of redemption history therein, and thus the accompanying events. The implication that is just heavy that Yeshua was one of those signs, the chief sign of the times. Now, there is a principle that simply oozes out of what we're reading, yet it's one that can be easily overlooked. It is that despite the well-worn expression to the contrary, 
Seeing is not necessarily believing. It wasn't only the religious leaders, but also the thousands of common Jews that had personally seen Yeshua's incomparable acts of compassion and miracles, had heard his many sermons so full of wisdom and truth, yet that still did not bring them to a belief that extended beyond his mysterious ability to heal. Yeshua proved, even though it frustrated him deeply, that doing miracle healings for unbelievers is not what brings them to faith. And this reality is no different in the 21st century. Or as W.D. Davies puts it, whereas miracles do not create faith, faith does in fact work miracles. In verse 4, giving is the reason for his refusal to produce a sign in the sky, something he was clearly capable of doing. Jesus says it is because these religious leaders are representative of those being in league with Satan. Now, adulterous means to be unfaithful to the God whom they purport to be in union with and serve. Marriage terms like adultery are used because human marriage is the illustration that is regularly applied in the Bible to explain the kind of relationship we are to have with God. Now, marriage unions consist either of faithful partners or unfaithful, adulterous ones. Yeshua's claim against these religious leaders is deeply offensive to them and quite embarrassing to have happening in front of an audience of onlookers. Now, both Matthew and Mark report that Yeshua abruptly ended the confrontation and left the leaders standing there as he got into a boat, went back to an undisclosed location on the east side of the lake. I have a little doubt. It was to escape his being arrested. Now, the scene changes to the boat as it's crossing over the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and his disciples are apparently some distance from the shore when one of them notices they'd forgotten to bring food, bread. Bread, lechem, in Hebrew was a term that doubled as one time meaning actual dough that rose and then was baked. Another time it simply means food in general. Bread was the staple food of the times, especially for the common folk. It was not only part of every meal, it was the primary food eaten often with nothing to supplement, supplement it. So the disciples were likely a little bit upset when they discover they've somehow left their bread behind. Yeshua uses the mistake as an opportunity to teach. Now Mark disagrees with Matthew on one small point. Matthew says they had no bread. Mark says there was one loaf between them all, hardly enough to go around. Yeshua uses the important ingredient of leaven in bread to illustrate a point. Verse 6, he says, the disciples need to be very careful. They need to guard themselves against the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, leaven is often used biblically as a metaphor for sin. And yet, it was at times, like here, 
also used as a metaphor for teaching. Now, very likely what we have here is a word play. See, in Aramaic, the word for leaven is hamara. The word for teaching is amara. Hebrew and Aramaic are cousin languages. It was common that both languages were spoken by Holy Land Jews in Yeshua's day. Now we know for sure, because of His final utterance on the cross, that Yeshua could speak Aramaic. So leaven was known to be used as a term describing teaching that was neither positive nor negative. It was the context of a conversation that determined in what light to take the meaning. <clears throat> now here, because Yeshua says to be beware, clearly He means the ter term leaven as a negative. So the idea is that while the instruction of the Pharisees and the Sadducees may not always be wrong, all too often it is. <clears throat> and this wrong instruction can be a corrupting influence that clouds or even replaces God's truth, and it leads people astray. And we've already seen Christ exoriate the, the Pharisees for just this reason. <clears throat> <clears throat> In the previous chapter of Matthew, we read of Yeshua saying this in chapter 15, verses 4 through 6, For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone uses, uh, says this, says to his father and mother, well, I've promised to give to God what I might, might have used to help you. Then he's rid of his duty to honor his father and mother. Thus, by your tradition, you make null and void the word of God. <clears throat> so what Yeshua is saying to his disciples and against the Pharisees has now been extended to actions and edicts set down by the chief priests even the high priest, those who control the temple and belong to the Sadducee party. Now, while the leaven metaphor is not a parable in which only one single moral point is being made, at the same time, we should resist the urge to find a flurry of allegorical uses of the term leaven in this verse that can send us away from what is really a pretty simple message. <clears throat> And that message is this. It is the human tendency to automatically place our trust in our religious leaders. But we should always do that with a strong sense of caution. Their instruction to us could very well be in error and have, even have a hidden agenda behind it. It's all too easy to assume that these leaders are especially holy and that what they do and what they say, well, just must be biblical, biblical in its source proper before God, because after all, they're the experts. They're the religious office holders. They're the role models. Now, while Yeshua is, of course, referring directly to those particular 
Pharisees and Sadducees that put their man-made doctrines above God's Word, it equally applies to all Judeo-Christian religious leaders in every era, whatever their title might be or office they hold. See, it's really only in recent times that the layperson within Judaism or Christianity has the means to fact-check what our religious leaders are telling us. Bible ownership, even after the invention of the printing press, was still something that only the more well-to-do could afford. Later's costs went down, a Bible was still so expensive that it was considered a prized family possession that was usually handed down as an inheritance to the next generation. Today, Bibles are exceptionally cheap, available in scores of languages and translation, and given a pardon me, given away by the hundreds of thousands to people who don't even have a few dollars to buy one. So the 21st century believer, everybody that's listening, has the means at our fingertips to see if what is being taught to us agrees with the Bible. Therefore, we are without excuse. When we allow our rabbis and our pastors to get away with, at times, taking great liberties with God's Word and teaching man-made doctrines as though it was holy truth. Now, we don't necessarily have to confront them about it, but we can apply a filter to our eyes and ears about what they say. Now, what is truly remarkable is the resources we now have available online. I have no doubt, no doubt, this is a fulfillment, or at least part of a fulfillment, of the strange prophecy from Daniel chapter 12. In verse 4 it says, But you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal up the book until the time of the end. Many will rush here and there as knowledge increases. As knowledge increases. Little more than 25 years ago, the knowledge and materials that were the sole province of theological schools were locked up, available only for, for those few worthy students that attended and it was handed out within whatever doctrinal framework that school adhered to. The average synagogue or church member had little to no access, but because of the internet, now these libraries and their scholarly content have become open to the public, and far more in-depth Bible teaching has become available to the average God worshiper for little cost. On the other hand, we must understand that in Christ's era, personal access by the common man to even the tiniest portion of Holy Scripture was not possible. Scripture scrolls were few, and they were held mostly by the wealthy and the religious authorities. The elite among the Jews, like Paul, for instance, did have an opportunity to go to one of the great religious academies of the day if they had the funds and they had the influence to gain them a seat in one of them. 
Yeshua knew that indeed these Jews who came to hear him were helpless sheep before these ravenous wolves of the religious leadership that had their own personal interests in mind, not the welfare of God's people. And yet there's another item in the background of Yeshua's warning to his disciples to watch out, guard themselves against the teachings, the leaven of the Jewish religious leadership. And as we've seen, Christ's disciples still held the Jewish religious leadership in high regard. They respected them as pious men. They believed what they taught. In their minds, Yeshua's teachings were a kind of supplement, but not a challenge to the accepted leadership and customs. So far, they didn't seem to grasp that much of what Jesus taught conflicted with the tradition-based teachings that were typical of the synagogue. It's, it's not unlike warning your child for the hundredth time not to cross the street before looking both ways for traffic. Now, crossing a street's not a bad or a wrong thing, but the hope is that someday that child will subordinate his or her instincts to just dart out into the road, assuming all is well, and instead approach it with due caution, that due caution you've been telling them to do. Now, verse 7 reveals that the disciples thought that when Jesus spoke to them about the hamets, the leaven, that he meant it literally. Because, see, all the disciples' focus was that they'd forgotten to bring bread to eat. Now, their focus and mindset was still earthbound, while Yeshua's teaching was heavenly and spiritual-based. So once again, Yeshua accuses them all, as a, as a group, of having little trust. Not no trust, small trust. Now, hidden just under the surface is an important principle that is among the most difficult to communicate and to internalize. It is that trust in Christ is what opens our minds so that we can learn and act upon what it is that He and all of God's Word is telling us. See, without that firm trust, not just in anything, not faith for the sake of faith, but trust in Him, we will find ourselves otherwise exactly as these disciples are. They have been sitting at the feet of Jesus, receiving personalized instruction for several months. And yet, their trust in Him is still so small that they cannot discern the more profound things that He's been trying to teach them. So the inalterable principle is this, the more we trust in Yeshua, the more we'll understand His words. The less we trust in Yeshua, the less we'll understand His words. In some ways, the disciples still place Yeshua lower in the religious pecking order of the Jewish faith than the synagogue and the temple leadership. Well, verses 9 and 10 that begin don't you understand yet? 
expresses an obvious level of frustration within Jesus towards the seeming inability of his disciples to comprehend the meaning of all that's been happening. He blames this inability on their lack of trust. Then he goes on to remind them of the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, later the 4,000, for which they were present. They were the ones who distributed, distributed that multiplied food with the idea that such a thing should have been instructed to them. But it wasn't. The word usually translated into English as remember when Christ said, remember, don't you remember? It's not meant to be some passive intellectual activity of merely recalling the specifics of an event. Rather, because Matthew was a Jew and he wrote his gospel in Hebrew, no doubt the Hebrew word he was thinking of was zakar. And zakar means to remember in the sense of paying heed to something, taking further action, giving something more and deeper thought because of what's called to mind. Yeshua goes on in verse 11 to say, and I paraphrase, how in the world can you think I was talking about leaven that's used in making bread? Rather, Christ's disciples are to guard themselves against the hamets, the leaven, the corrupted teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, we're not told the response of the disciples. But in a few verses, we find that at least one disciple had a true spiritual breakthrough. It's rather mysterious that in Mark's account in chapter 8, in verse 15, he says the disciples are to guard themselves against the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Of Herod. What's Herod got to do with it? Now, I've heard a few different explanations for this, but none of them bear up to scrutiny. Okay, for one thing, which Herod is Mark talking about? I mean, is he talking about Herod the Great? Or is he talking about his son, Herod Antipas? And why would any Jew ever look to any, either of them for spiritual food? I mean, perhaps the closest to an explanation that might work is if this was referring to Herod the Great because the priesthood represented by the Sadducees, especially the high priest, had been in Herod's pocket. Although by Christ's adult life, Herod was dead. But other than that, one has to wonder if the addition of Herod to this verse wasn't actually Mark's, but rather can be attributed to a later copyist error. And I, I kind of think this is what happened. Now this episode in Magadan by the Sea of Galilee ends with Matthew telling us that Yeshua next appeared with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, also known as Banias, home to the worship of the god Pan. Now this is a fascinating sight in Israel, that most times that I take a tour group to Israel, we try to stop here, to take in its beauty and its history and to have a Bible lesson. Now it's located on the southern slope of Mount Hermon in the, the north of Israel, and it is one of the sources of water for the Jordan River. It's here that Christ's mission and the question of who and what Yeshua is 
turns a corner. It's here that Yeshua makes the leap in his identity from Sadiq to Mashiach, from Jewish holy man to Israel's Messiah. In verse 13, Jesus asks his disciples, who are people saying the Son of Man is? Now, Pandora's box has just been opened. And a question has been asked that despite what the average believer might think, it has not been fully settled up until our day. Matthew's Gospel has the disciples saying that some people say he's John the Baptist. Others that he's Elijah. Still others that he's the prophet Jeremiah or maybe another of the revered prophets of old. Now this ought to be sufficient evidence to prove that Jesus has to this point not made a firm mention of who he is, such that people could quote him or have some kind of definitive description of him. Now I spoke to you in, earlier, in an earlier lesson about how Herod Antipas was concerned that Jesus might be the resurrected or reincarnated, really, John the Baptist. And that this idea came to him not from his own mind, but from others around him. I mean, so such superstitions had much popularity among the Jewish people in those days. Yeshua, as a reappearance of Elijah, had some merit in that Elijah went to heaven having never died, and he was prophesied to return at the end of days, something which many Jew Jews believed they were currently living out. And then finally there was this thought that Christ could be a reappearance of the prophet Jeremiah. Now, biblically speaking, no such thing was contemplated for Israel's prophets. However, it was the subject of folklore and Jewish tradition that some of Israel's ancient prophets would appear in the latter days. The thing is that the people were just guessing about Jesus because they were uncertain just how to label him. We all want to label something. It's so much easier. Now, interesting, interestingly, the one thought of the people that <laughs> never seemed to enter their minds as a possibility was that Yeshua could be the Messiah. Why might that be? See, now this leads to a subject all its own. In the minds of first century Jews, what was a Messiah thought to be? What did they think he would do? Now this is important. See, because it goes a long way to explain the challenge that Yeshua had in explaining his true and fullest identity over and against the expectations about a Messiah that had been taught to the people by the synagogue leadership. Yeshua's person and purpose were misunderstood by the very people he came to save. As one example of this, we read in the book of John, John 6, verses 14 through 15. When the people saw the miracle he had performed, they said, this has to be the prophet who's supposed to come into this world. Yeshua knew that they were at the point 
of coming and seeking him, seizing him in order to make him king. So he went back to the hills again. This time he went back by himself. See, this probably represents the most widely taught and accepted mindset and firm belief among the Jews of what the hope for Messiah was to be. See, he would, he would, not, he would come not as a religious leader. He would come as a political figure. The Romans seemed to be quite aware of this belief among the Jews that the Messiah was going to be a, a what? A king. They took this as a threat. They took it quite seriously. The Messiah would be the first Jewish king Israel had had in hundreds of years. And of course, this belief came from a firm biblical foundation. 2 Samuel. If you want to turn your Bibles there, go ahead. But I'm just going to read it to you. 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to read verses 4 through 16. 2 Samuel 7, verses 4 through 16. But that same night the word of Adonai came to Nathan, Nathan. Go and tell my servant David that this is what Adonai says. You are going to build me a house to live in? Since the day I brought the people of Israel out of Egypt until today, I never lived in a house. Rather, I traveled in a tent and a tabernacle. Everywhere I traveled with all the people of Israel did I ever speak a word to any of the tribes of Israel whom I ordered to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a cedar wood house? Therefore say this to my servant David. This is what Adonai Sefaot says. I took you from the sheepyards, from following the sheep, to make you chief over all my people, over Israel. I have been with you wherever you went. I have destroyed all your enemies ahead of you. I am making your reputation great like the reputations of the greatest people on earth. I will assign a place to my people Israel. I will plant them there so that they can live in their own place without being disturbed anymore. The wicked will no longer oppress them as they did at the beginning. And as they did from the time I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. Instead, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Adonai tells you that Adonai will make you a house. And when your days come to an end and you sleep with your ancestors, I will establish one of your descendants to succeed you, one of your own flesh and blood and I will set up his rulership. He will build a house for my name. I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father for him. He will be a son for me. If he does something wrong, I'll punish him with a rod and blows just like everyone gets punished. Nevertheless, my grace will not leave him as I took it away from Shaul, from Saul whom I remove from before you. Thus your house and your kingdom will be made secure forever before you. Your throne will be set up forever. So the reality is, oh, this is important to understand, folks. The reality is 
Jesus would be executed by the Romans primarily because he was mistakenly seen as a political offender that challenged Roman rule. When we read of that sign, remember that sign tacked onto the cross above Yeshua's head, what did it say? King of the Jews. See, this was to mock him, but certainly not in the spiritual or the religious sense. See, it was a demonstration to the Jewish people with the message that they ought to abandon any hope that a Jewish Messiah could come along, lead a successful rebellion against Rome, and install himself as a king. Nonetheless, the expectation of the Jewish people was that their Messiah would be a warrior leader and a king like David, who would successfully vanquish their Roman occupiers. Of course, as we've been reading, Yeshua wanted no part of being a political figure. He had no intention of trying to break the cruel yoke of Rome off the necks of his fellow countrymen. And despite the broad expectation among the Jewish public that their Messiah would be a political deliverer, there wasn't anything near to what we might call a unanimity of thought among the Jewish religious authorities or people regarding the attributes and works of the suspected, expected anointed one. See, it does us well to recall that Mashiach, Messiah, means anointed one. It does not mean savior. It is a rather broad term as used in the Bible. And it was applied to every single one of Israel's kings. That is, from a purely literary standpoint, every Israelite king was a Messiah, a Mashiach, an anointed one. Not metaphorically, not allegorically, actually. The title of Mashiach meant to communicate two things. First, that this person was spiritually anointed by God as his divine chosen to lead his people. Second, the king was literally ceremonially anointed by having oil, olive oil, poured over his head in an inauguration usually officiated by the high priest. So, the most predominant view of Jesus by the Jewish people as we find it in the New Testament, was in a nationalistic tone, not in a religious one. If Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, it would be as a typical sitting king over a newly reestablished, independent nation of Israel. See, the religious component was completely secondary to the political component. And the religious component existed primarily because there were the prophecies that this new King Messiah 
what a rise in rule and because secular life and religious life were not separated or, or compartmentalized like they are today. Now, I dare to say that my reading of the Gospels decisively shows that the messianic expectations of the Jewish people in that era are nothing like the Christian view. And perhaps this is because the gospel accounts are based, please hear this, the gospel accounts are based almost entirely of the recorded history and life of Christ prior to his death and resurrection. His death, burial, and resurrection, and even ascension are told in only the final one and one half of the 28 chapters of Matthew. In the final one and one half of the 16 chapters of Mark, and in the less than two of the 24 chapters of Luke. Thus, the Christian views of who the historical Yeshua was and how to understand what his words and his actions meant are based almost entirely on what happened after his death. Now, by no means am I suggesting this is wrong. What I'm suggesting is that when Christianity reads back into the bulk of the gospel accounts, things that happened before Yeshua's execution, interpretations and doctrines that are formed based only on the last few paragraphs of each gospel book, that's how the church can misunderstand so much of what happened in the many acts of Jesus and what it meant to the minds of the Jewish people of his era. The Jews had been conditioned through centuries of teaching and traditions to understand the expected Jewish Messiah in certain ways. Yeshua didn't fit the mold because the mold makers were wrong. One other backdrop matter also tends to escape Christian view, especially the modern Christian view. It is that within the Jewish culture, the expectation of the arrival of a Messiah coincided with the end times and the apocalypse. This expectation was not lost on Yeshua, nor did he ever deny it. He saw his own advent as a latter days event. And all the apostles who followed him, including Paul, were certain they were living in the latter days. Not only because of the things Yeshua said, but because the culturally accepted notions of the Jews had all that woven into their thinking. Jesus, therefore, was not some odd figure who operated outside the cultural norms and lifestyle of typical Jewish society. He would not have stood out in a Jewish crowd from his appearance. Rather, he would have blended because he was indeed one of them. So it is with this conceptualization of Jesus in the minds of the Jews among whom he spoke and he lived 
And he performed all those miracles that we need to understand all that's gonna come next in Christ's life as it's presented in the gospel accounts. Okay, we'll continue next week in chapter 16.